2: Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series, hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I am joined by Dr. Elspeth Brown professor at the Department of History at the University of Toronto. We are in conversation about her book, Work, A Queer History of Modeling, published by Duke University Press in 2019. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Brown. Welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here, thank you.
2: Yay. All right, um, okay, the first question that like to ask like everybody, is just how did this project get conceived? And what makes the history of modeling in particular queer? And specifically, if you could address the queerness in terms of your own methodology.
1: Certainly. Um, well, the project came about, uh, as these things often do, in relationship to another project. When I was working on my first book and I was writing about an early commercial photographer named lajaron Hiller, who I argued and I think this is true, is the person who kind of convinced Madison Avenue or the advertising industry in the United States to shift from pen and ink illustration to photography. And he did this in the, around World War One through the 1920s period in the United States. And when I went to write that one paragraph about the rise of the modeling industry, I couldn't find any literature at all because Lejar and Hiller, basically what he did is He went out, he figured out, okay, it's going to be a lot cheaper to hire people to pose for a photograph than it would be to actually hire them to sit for a long period of time to be drawn by commercial illustrators. And so he went out into the streets of New York and he found people who he thought represented a certain kind of type, like the kindly grandmother or what have you. And then he paid them, you know, a few bucks to sit for their photograph to be taken And so as I was trying to describe this, and I was looking for the secondary sources that would help me historicize this particular moment, I couldn't find anything. And I thought, well, that is really super weird. Why is there no historical writing about an industry that is obviously quite large and profoundly important in terms of uh, 20th century capitalism and how it works uh, transnationally and globally globally? Um, and then it took me a while to realize, oh, there's very excellent and understandable reasons why no one has written that history. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I should be the person to write it. Um, so that was, that was my, my idea a long time ago. It took me a while to get to the, finish the writing the book, but I finally did uh, actually finish it, obviously. Otherwise we wouldn't be chatting here today. Um, but I have to say I didn't, I didn't conceptualize the book as a queer history when I started it. And in fact, I, I kind of took, um, I had a very different approach originally. Um, originally, my approach was very much um, almost like Frankfurt School, thinking through the lens of rationalization and standardization as my um, theoretical framework for trying to understand the labor of these models and all the cultural producers that are part of the advertising industry, uh, but then the more the more I did research, I realized that in fact this framework of a kind of um, Frankfurt School rationalization framework was did not actually capture the work that was happening on the on the site of a photographic encounter between um, a model and a photographer and an art director and all the folks that are involved with any kind of um, production of a photographic shoot. Um, So then I was trying to think about other frameworks that would really kind of allow me to talk about the creative elements that actually disrupt models of system and models of Uh, rationalization Um, and also trying to think about questions of desire and affect um, also kind of helped me to break open that prior theoretical framework that I had been working with in my in my earlier uh, research and then the other there was another practical thing that happened too which was whenever I went to write a chapter about a kind of normative approach to modeling, I just frequently I just couldn't do it. I just could not make myself write that chapter about, I don't know, Devima or Twiggy or whatever the kind of expectations about a normative approach might be. And I found myself writing about the queer photographers and the African American models and all of things that were kind of non-standard to an expected narrative history of uh, the modeling industry Um, So even though there hasn't been a lot of very little scholarly writing on the history of modeling, um, I decided nonetheless, I needed to kind of do it through this much more idiosyncratic and queer approach.
2: Right. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And this question of desire And labor, in fact, is quite central to your work and effective labor in particular. And you look not only at the production and circulation of these in unpredictable ways, but also how these are sort of tamed by brands, right? Usually you don't think about affect as a part of the capitalist, at least in the way that we understand affect as a part of the capitalist enterprise but you post it as strategically important to the development of the modeling and fashion industry, even if it is through the taming of it and strategically locating it. Could you speak to us a little bit about that? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this is – I mean, capitalism, the circulation of goods, uh, the mobility of goods throughout – transnational economies, global economies. It happens through the vehicle of, of desire um, and affect. I mean, and so if you want to look at uh, the theoretical framing of affect, and we could have that conversation about how different scholars have understood affect. But I guess um, I realize there's an attraction to the utopian moment of the split 30 seconds, if you will, that Brian Misumi, for example, argues that affect is untamed and kind of un um, uncaptured, if you will, by the cognitive tethering that happens once one individually figures out that this affect is an emotion that we can label as desire, for example. <clears throat> but I guess I'm a much of, I'm a cynic and I feel that Actually, that's not much time. (laughs) And in fact, advertisers and marketers are really good at quickly tethering um, a utopian possibility of desire to a uh, commercial good. And that, in fact, is the entire focus and point of advertising and marketing. And so there's there's a dystopic element, if you will, to desire that is tied to the production and circulation of consumer goods. And as much as we might like to hope otherwise, uh, queerness is very much, of course, tied up with this, with the, with global capitalism. How could it not be? We're, we're certainly not outside of capitalism as an economic form. So you're right in the sense that um, as much as I want to hold on to the utopic potentialities of queer desire, um, it's also, as it gets mobilized and circulates within a global economy, it's, of course, very much tied to uh, market formations and to capitalism as, as a global system. And so what I was trying to do in the book is um, kind of created create an opportunity for the both the utopian and the dystopic elements to be working uh, in dialogue with each other, right? Um, because I think queer world, world-making is an essential strategy for uh, living, uh, especially for uh, marginalized LGBTQ people, for example, people of color, trans people. And people's engagement with the photographic image, uh, like, for example, looking at a Danielle Luna um, photograph or uh, Naomi Sims' modeling work, for example, in the the 1970s, I know from looking at the archival record and looking at letters people wrote to uh, Naomi Sims, for example, how important it was for young um, African-Americans, probably queer African-Americans, to be able to open a magazine and see uh, Naomi Sims there modeling um, clothing and or uh, appearing even in a cigarette advertisement, right? So there's there's a way in which that type of representation is profoundly important in terms of creating um, a subjectivity that is based on a sense of authenticity, but resilience in relationship to racism or other hegemonic formations. At the same time, it's selling cigarettes, right? So there's, it's always a double-edged sword in that sense. Um, and so in the terms of the project overall, I didn't, I didn't want to fall on one side or the other of that divide. And I know within a lot of um, LGBTQ history, let's say, There is a tendency, I think, to look at social movement formations through the lens of a discourse of liberation and progress. And of course, that work is extremely important. And I do participate in the creation of that uh, archival legacy through oral history work that I do. But at the same time, um, capitalism is a kind of wily beast and is very capable of commodifying uh, subject formations very quickly, uh, or pink washing as we might call it more recently. And so I was interested in that dynamic, uh, as well. And I'm hoping that the project is able to speak to, uh, both of those elements, which of course are very much related to, uh, brands and to, as well as to desire and effective labor.
2: Yeah, yeah no, you touched on a lot of different things, and I'd like to come back to those. But I'd like to start with uh, your discussion in Chapter 3 about queer counterpublics that were emerging uh, at these sites where everything was being sanitized, right? And uh, a certain kind of modeling look, for instance, was being upheld, which was very Anglo-Saxon and... Uh, uh, heterosexist in its sort of uh, uh, conception. I was just wondering what are the possibilities of such racialized, classed, yet non-normative uh, sensibilities that created the intimacies of the queer kinship networks, which you also call, uh, within these spaces, right? In the heart of sort of this capitalist uh, enterprise.
1: that Basically. Well, what, what you're what you're talking about there is this chapter in chapter three is a chapter in which I was excavating a kind of queer velvet underground, if you will, among uh, very elite gay white photographers who were working on both sides of the Atlantic to produce the look of glamour in the interwar period. So I'm talking about photographers such as. George Platt Lines, who I write about the most, but also Cecil Beaton, George Heineken-Huna, also Horst, his protege, um, and also former lover. And these men basically had the um, Condé Nast posts on both sides of the Atlantic. So we're talking Vogue in New York, but also there was an LA studio that George Platt Line set up in the 1940s, Vogue Paris, Vogue uh, London, or Brogue as it's called, British Vogue, Um, and these men were very closely linked to each other, uh, both in terms of their erotic attachments but also um, their their work process. Um, And they together, it, it seems to me, were really setting the, the visual discourse, the look, if you will, of glamour uh, during the interwar period. And in fact, as I argue in the chapter, uh, Hollywood photographers really were looking very closely at what, um, at what these photographers were doing in vogue during this period of time. And so where we, we generally look to Hollywood to kind of set um, the discourse of what glamour looks like, and of course that makes a lot of sense, There was a lot of close relationships between um, Hollywood, which, of course, has its own queer um, elements as well in terms of its visual production with people like George et etc. who were also linked with these photographers. There's a very close uh, dialogue, I guess is what I'm trying to say, between Condé Nast photographers and Hollywood uh, during this period of time. And in terms of the racial formation of this, of this group, I mean, they're completely elite and white. So the, if there's any racial formation that's unfolding, it's around uh, discourses um, of whiteness. And this is where the whole question of who gets to be glamorous, which has a longer history, um, is really uh, central to this formation because in an earlier time period, um, as you're alluding to in the 1920s, for example, glamour as a term was definitely understood as a racialized term referencing um, not so much African Americans, but um, people who historians have described as being, uh, quote unquote, provisionally white during the teens and 20s and the lead up to the 1924 racist uh, Johnson Act, which limited immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. And what I mean by this is basically Southern and Eastern Europeans, um, Poles, Italians, um, for example, Jews, who were not even conceptualized as being white by looking at the um, uh, racial understandings of the, uh, of the 19-teens and 1920s. And part of how it is that Southern and Eastern Europe's became white is much longer history that definitely has to do with the consolidation of whiteness vis-a-vis African-Americans and Asian-Americans throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So it is a this, this glamor that I'm describing being produced by people like George Platt Lines, for example, is a racial project in that sense as well, um, which is to say making a certain type of visual allure safe for um, Anglo-Saxon types to perform without, at the same time, destabilizing um, categories of, of sexuality for a broader public.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
1: off.
2: Right, right. No, thank so you. For a bit a long-winded
1: explanation. To your no,
2: question. that's absolutely fine. I hope.
1: it's uh, No, up. that's great.
2: No, you should be doing all of the talking. I should be doing all <laughs> that. Bad. Not at
1: all.
2: No, but but this sort of conflict between normativity and queerness is is something that you grapple with throughout your text, and also comes through in the methodology and how you look at the sites of your data right which is the photographs right so what does it mean now coming back to this question of method to find queerness and normativity in these photographs and fashion photography in particular about where, where feeling and emotion sort of exceed the body that is captured right mm-hmm. so what does it mean for the uh for that 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 sort of Struggle between normativity and queerness in that in arresting a movement, uh, arresting a movement, right, arresting something that is in motion. Yeah, so, so what, yeah.
1: Well, it, I mean, you're raising a really interesting question about still photography in the context of mobility and motion, because of course this is a really central tension within fashion photography as a field, because. Um, the whole way in which you sell clothing um, is through uh, through mobility, in fact. I mean, this is the whole reason why there was a shift from uh, sawdust dummies as mannequins to living people wearing clothing, because it became very clear that in order to sell clothing, a couturier – and this is where it happened in the late 19th and early 20th century – Needed to be able to show the clothing moving on a living body because it's only through movement that a potential sale could unfold, that somebody could say, Oh my goodness, that particular gown is exactly what I need because a model is wearing it. And that's why it is that in high end department stores, you have people who are house models who are wearing clothing for high end buyers who are able to actually see what a model of clothing which is where the word model comes from, by the way, what it looks like when it's being worn. And, you know, somebody wouldn't actually, wanting to buy a dress, wouldn't actually put the dress on themselves at first. No, they would look to see uh, what the dress looked like on a model um, known as a house model um, in that particular uh, context. So the question of mobility is really central to the clothing item. So this is a a longer history from the 19th century up to the early 20th century. And by the time you get to um, the 30s, the question becomes, okay, how do you take a dress that is um, normally worn by a person, how do you translate that into a still photograph that is on the pages of um, a high-end fashion magazine? And this was the problem that these early fashion photographers needed to address. and as I talk about in the book, one of the you know the key figure here in terms of the early 20th century is Baron Adolf de Meyer, who was a queer uh, fashion photographer who was the first paid fashion photographer for, for Conde Nest. Um, so the challenge becomes how do you take the mobility of the clothing item and communicate that through a still photograph? And this is something that uh, the very successful photographers, were able to actually accomplish um, in, uh, in, these, in these magazines. Um, so this is the kind of uh, challenge between mobility and stasis that you have in terms of the making of the photograph. And then there's the element of mobility around how does the photograph uh, circulate? And that's another type of mobility. Of course, it's circulating at that time through the pages of these high-end uh, magazines. More recently, of course, uh, fashion photographs circulate in multiple different ways and are appropriated in multiple um, different ways. And as you're suggesting, the question of feeling exceeds the body um, through circulation, right? This is, I mean, this is where Sarah Ahmed's work is, I think, really valuable. Uh, she thinks about affect as emotion moving um, between and among bodies. In her work, uh, she's mostly at least the work that I read is mostly dealing with negative affects like hate, for example, and how hate is produced as an affect circulating across bodies. But her methodology in thinking about the ways in which feelings exceed the body through um, uh, affect as a kind of mobilizing um, discourse can work in a number of different settings. And I use it to think about the questions of desire and how that circulates across bodies and a comm- as a type of commercialized public feeling.
2: Going off of that, sort of this this idea of movement, it's a very particular uh, kind of feminized movement. Racialized and classed femininities are being showcased through these, and 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 through these is the labor that goes into modeling is being contoured, right? So my question is like. These feminization, this feminization of the model that develops within this period in relationship is existing in relationship to other figures in the industry uh, with asymmetrical power dynamics, right? So the photographer, the fashion designer, uh, and the modeling agencies, for instance. Uh, could you talk to us about the complicated relationships of power in relationship to race, class and uh, empire that emerge through these sort of asymmetrical relationships within?
1: the larger fashion industry? Um, oh, well, certainly I'll, I'll do what I can about this. It, it's interesting that, I mean, I, I made a decision early on uh, to, to write about female models, uh, people who are embodied as female, um, partially because I, it was just a lot to take on to deal with male modeling as well. Um, And so I had written some work about the Marlboro Man, for example, that I ended up publishing separately. And I mentioned this because the question of gender on the sexed body, uh, gender itself, of course, is a very mobile uh, formation and can attach itself to any number of different kinds of bodies, right? So I ended up writing about people who um, are presenting as female and who are performing femininities. But... It's not always the case, right? Because some of the uh, photographers who are uh, signed male at birth and who um, understand themselves as as gay men, one could argue, uh, are also performing various versions of femininities. Um, and their, their ability to produce uh, different kinds of genders in their working process, I think, is actually quite... Useful in terms of their dynamic with the model, like for example, take it, uh, just to take one example, um, Dick Avedon or Richard Avedon, who has historically been seen as a straight photographer, and um, because he was married twice and has children, uh, et cetera. But we know more recently uh, from his. Uh, a studio assistant, having written, studio manager, having written a memoir that he had actually quite complex, um, let's just call it queer sexuality, in which he had relationships with men and had sex with men, but was very closeted as well. Um, and he, he enjoyed working with women in a very different way, one could argue, from some of the you know traditional playboy photographer types. And this comes out in how he worked with models on the shoot. So his, his dynamic in relationship to the female models was much more collaborative. It wasn't sexualized uh, to the extent that it might have been if he had been heterosexual in terms of his uh, private life. Um, and it created a very different kind of dynamic than um, a much more uh, heterosexual dynamic between a, a, a female model and a male uh, photographer, which of course is almost like a cliche of the industry in terms of the exploitation that models um, unfortunately uh, navigate often in terms of um, sexual harassment on the job site, which is definitely of course a major uh, dynamic. So that's definitely one of the um, elements I think of the actual shoot, and of course, being gay doesn't necessarily mean that you are treat women well. Um, there's the work of, uh, for example, uh, George Hoenig and who was just uh, basically a completely, um, kind of, from what I can tell, a bit of a jerk in terms of how he dealt with models on this on the. Uh, on the set, you know, a kind of autocrat, if you will, um, and so it really depends very much on on the on the personality. But the kind of performativity of gender on the set, I think, is one of the interesting things that kind of can emerge in different ways. But all of the examples that I've just described are, are having to do with, um, well, not all of them. I'm just thinking about the racial dynamics here as well, because. The collaboration between uh, Richard Avedon and Danielle Luna is one of the ones that I talk about in the book, um, which I think was a really critically important collaboration because Danielle Luna was an African-American, or she would say mixed race model, who was the first um, put, uh, first black model to be in the pages of uh, of um, a high-end fashion magazine. And I, I talk about uh, this Harper's Bazaar issue that Dick Abaddon uh, guest edited in 1965, and the kind of fallout from that shoot when he worked with uh, Danielle Luna, um, and that was very much a kind of uh, a kind of intervention that Danielle Luna was making into the whiteness of the fashion industry in the 1960s, and. Um, Richard Avedon. As I discovered through my research, I, I didn't I didn't expect to write about Richard Avedon to be honest with you because I thought, oh well, really people always write about Richard Avedon, don't we? Is there anything we need to know that's new about Richard Avedon? And I realized, you know what? There's a lot. So one of the things that I learned was what a an important role he played in terms of helping to break down the color line in uh, the high-end uh, fashion photography and fashion work during the, not just the 60s, but he was also the person who made um, made a space, made it possible for Chino Machado uh, to get her career started. Um, and then also he worked with um, Daniel Luna. And he was, of course, um, as I mentioned in the book, he was very close friends with James Baldwin, and they went to high school together and they co-edited the high school literary magazine and had some projects that they worked on together, including, of course, their, their text image collaboration, Nothing Personal, which came out, if I remember correctly, in 1964, and it's just been reissued by the Avedon Foundation. So Richard Avenon emerged as, a, as an unexpected um, figure for me in my writing, I hadn't realized when I was actually writing the extent of his queerness in terms of his sexuality, but I certainly learned much more about his um, anti-racist interventions as uh, limited as they were within the context of an intensely racist industry, which is the fashion industry. He definitely did what he could and used his own uh, power, which was considerable given his status as a photographer to pave the way and make it possible for non-white models to both be in front of the camera but then after their careers were over as models to uh, make opportunities for them within the industry as for example uh, fashion editors etc within the magazine industry
2: No yeah that's that's really interesting and and I think this sort of comes through in your text. So one of the key things that you do is talk about race and even class in aesthetic terms, right? So these racialized and class differences and and attitudes towards race and class are not measured quantitatively, but understood very aesthetically in terms of, and in question of like affect and desire and all of those things. Could you maybe talk to us about the generation of inequality through aesthetic affect, in these uh, in this
1: context um, can you can you tell me a little bit more what you're looking for the generation of inequality through aesthetics
2: yeah but also sort of circumventing it which is you sort of already addressed that oh, but okay. yeah um, yeah and 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 maybe i can turn this into a two part question because you sort of Im- talked about this category of authentic in the beginning and it emerges as uh, you talk about this category of real in your text as well, right? So what does this category of real and and do and how does it play out in commercialized spaces as well? Because that's really related to the racialized affects that, that are generated,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, thank you. That's a really interesting question. Um, well, I, I think the... The aesthetic look of, of a model, of course, has historically been very much racialized as white. Um, and that goes back to the very beginnings of the industry, even uh, uh, live modeling, of course, in, um, in Europe in the 19th century. But when you get to the, the creation of live modeling in the United States around the World War I period, and certainly through advertising photography, the template model, if you will, is, is white. Um, and I talk about the model uh, Dolores who came over from England to work with um, uh, Lady Death Gordon in the early 20th century and then gets hired as one of the first showgirls for the, um, for the Ziegfeld um, follies. And here we have an example of somebody who represents a kind of statuesque Um, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon kind of elite uh, uh, look that is actually, she comes from a working class background, but it kind of sets the template for whiteness, if you will, in the industry and helps to kind of secure, uh, to tie glamour to a certain visual look, which is certainly based around uh, whiteness. So this, of course, is not news to anyone who knows anything about the history of beauty and aesthetic categories and racism within any field, but certainly it's there in in fashion and fashion modeling as well. So you have this kind of uh, normative formation of, let's just call it, white supremacy in relationship to how we understand beauty in the fashion industry And it means that anyone who's trying to kind of work with broadening that category of what constitutes the beautiful and the aesthetic within advertising and within the modeling industry is going to have to navigate that white supremacist uh, history. Um, So it's one of the, the histories that I end up describing and discussing in terms of the creation of, for example, the parallel African-American modeling industry in the post-World War II period, where white advertisers were refusing, obviously, to work with African-American models because they didn't want to taint the product, if you will, with uh, African-American bodies, African-American associations, African-American looks. And this is where, just to go back to our conversation that you and I had before the uh, podcast began around touch and the haptic. You know, the problem, the problem of having your product be touched by someone of a different uh, racial caste, if you will, is a s- significant problem from the perspective of a white supremacist uh, advertising formation that doesn't wanna see um, your washing machine or your uh, dress, be touched, if you will, by a non-white model because that will denigrate, uh, and even the word "denigrate," of course, is racialized. If you think about the etymology of the word "denigrate," you don't want to denigrate your your product with um, the touch of a non-white model. And of course, this this comes through in terms of uh, advertising markets and who is it that's um, going to be. Uh, who, who is it that you're marketing your product to, et cetera? So these were all the kinds of challenges that uh, that non-white models and those who were working with them have, to, have had to navigate. And of course, it was impossible to navigate uh, uh, until relatively recently within a white stream or mainstream white audience uh, and industry, which is why there was... A parallel um, industry in terms of uh, African-American modeling industries in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, where you have um, a whole separate industry because of the segregation of of media um, and the impossibility of African-American models working with African-American, I mean, outside of African-American contexts.
2: Could you uh, sort of perhaps talk about the relationship between categories of real and 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 how that plays into the commercialized spaces of making affect, and uh, especially within these racialized affect spaces, which you say these African American right, the, the the hair products or, or like the uh, anything that that speaks to this idea of being real or being authentically uh, African-American. yeah
1: certainly um, I'm happy to I'm happy to do that. Um, well, part of it is the appropriation of subcultural formations as well, right? So it's about, um, I'm, and when I talk about this discussion of the real, I'm focusing on this period of the, let's just call it the, the long 1960s. So the 60s into the 1970s, which of course is in the context of uh, the Black Power Movement and the Black is Beautiful and Global Soul and the ways in which um, in the wake of Uh, Black protest movements, uh, not dissimilar actually to what we're experiencing today, although for slightly different reasons, Um, advertising and commercial culture appropriated some of the uh, social and political energies behind uh, these social protest movements to create consumer goods that uh, collaborated with or drew from the, the kind of energies of those protest movements. And this is, uh, there's some aspects of it having to do with sort of the black arts movement, of course, which is, you know, coming out of an African-American uh, cultural movement. But then there's the flip side of it, which is the, uh, the commercial appropriation of some of those energies uh, in relationship to consumer products. And there as well, of course, it's complicated because we're talking about also there are African-American marketers like Carolyn Jones who are working as uh, brokers, if you will, between African-American cultural production and say the black arts movement um, and Madison Avenue or um, a kind of mostly white um, marketing and consumer culture uh, landscape. So the discourse of the real becomes central there because it's it's this discourse of authenticity and realness that becomes important for marketers to be able to identify, um, produce, uh, appropriate in order to sell consumer goods in the wake of such an important social upheaval as we saw in the 1960s. And I hadn't thought about this um, because obviously I wrote this book before the protest movements in the wake of the murder or killing of George Floyd. But if any of this, if there, if this argument that I'm making holds any water, then chances are we're going to see within mainstream commercial culture, the marketing of um, consumer goods that are drawing on these social protest movements that we've been seeing that we're seeing right now uh, in the United States, but of course globally as well. And it'd be interesting to see whether or not this discourse of the real uh, and the authentic becomes part of that um, appropriation and construction of new marketing opportunities to uh, consumers. I don't really know, but I think that's part of what um, what was happening in the, in the 60s and the 1970s is the, the sense that um, African-American culture is somehow more real than white culture. And part of this, of course, is a lot of um, disaffected uh, white middle-class uh, activists and young people who are basically are the baby boomer generation who are turning away from the conformity, um, of their parents' generation. Um, as I also talk about as well, I mean, this was the root of the, the poor, uh, the, um, the, uh, students for democratic society and some of the kind of white student movements and white protest movements against say the Vietnam war, obviously not only a white protest movement against the Vietnam war, but a kind of rejection of white middle-class conformist values that led to the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, et cetera. And part of that is a rejection of commercialism and a rejection of um, commodities um, and a rejection of plastic. Plastic becomes, of course, a key word, as we see um, in most famously in The Graduate, which I think came out in 1967, though I can't quite remember. So this this uh, tension between the plastic and the real, I think, is something that's really uh, central to this period of time historically.
2: Right. No, I was absolutely sort of taken by this idea of real and, and how that becomes a site of arresting something in motion too, right? You're talking about these movements and picking from these movements some aspects of it and then arresting that into this sort of congealed Commercialized thing that you can buy and sell and own and possess, right? So, uh, thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are the questions I have. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for joining us and for all of your insights. I am Lakshata Malik, and this discussion of work, A Queer History of Modeling, published by Duke University Press. In 2019, has been brought to you by New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.
0: Plus.